Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from documentary filmmaker Dia Khan about her two most recent projects for UK broadcaster ITV, looking at abortion in America and the impact of Donald Trump's presidency on the nation's Muslims. And In My Skin creator Kaylee Llewellyn and director Lucy Forbes discuss the Welsh coming-of-age BBC drama Tackling Mental Health. Emmy Award-winning director Dia Khan's two most recent projects have aired on UK broadcaster ITV recently. America's War on Abortion and Muslim in Trump's America both take an in-depth look at some of the issues affecting those living in an increasingly divisive society. She spoke with Clive Whittingham about these films, the impact of Donald Trump's presidency and how journalists and documentary makers go about re-establishing trust in an era of so-called fake news. So I've been interested in, in this topic for quite a long time, but haven't quite found a way to, to sort of tell that story. And while I was in America actually filming a different film for ITV, I started reading just article after article after article uh, in the US that was talking about how a whole host of anti-abortion laws and bills were being introduced, and very many of them were starting to be approved across various states, particularly in the South, uh, but across the US. And, and I just thought that I, I, I have to do something about this. I have to try and sort of just, for my own sake, try to understand what's going on and why is it that that a topic like abortion is such a political topic in America and why it is such a toxic and divisive issue in the in a way that it just isn't in the UK and 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 you know across Europe. Um, so I decided just to just to go ahead and do it. And I was initially was just going to do it in my own time. I was just gonna you know whenever I wasn't filming the other film, I was just going to do this. And then I spoke to ITV and said, "This is what I'm doing." And they said, "Yeah, well that's that's fine. You know, we'll we'll show it." So really, it, it was to satisfy my own curiosity and to try and understand what's really going on. And and the impact that Trump has had on this topic as a whole. I presume you've been filming this at least in part across this year when obviously there's been pandemic challenges. How was the filming process? It was hard. The The travel was hard um, because I also have a two and a half year old and I've been dragging her around with me on the road basically across America for the last 20 months now across the two films. It's been hard. It, uh, initially, you know, when the, the initial lockdowns happened in, in March and even Trump sort of announced that, you know, we're going to close borders, we're do this we're going to do that and and so at that point I just halted all, all filming and just sat there and just waited and waited and just waited for some sort of clarity really and and I finally you know did get to the point realizing that there's not going to be any clarity so either I just stay and wait for however long this is going to take in the US or I finish the films and pack up and, and come home and I decided to do that but it was very eerie you know having traveled as much as I have across America you know going to the airports and you know being just a handful of people around and just the sort of fear and suspicion in everybody's eyes, you know, as, as they sort of glance over at you as you're traveling. But also, you know, having said that, you know, the places that I actually went to were mostly across the South in, in the US. And, you know, very few people would wear masks. I would see people just jammed together in, in lifts together, not really, you know, particularly fast. And they were all hotspots. They were all massive hotspots in the US with, with an immense number of cases. But also having filmed inside a, a an abortion clinic uh, during COVID as well, it was, you know, we had to take certain precautions and, and, you know, follow certain health and safety protocols that we were, uh, got very 
used to very quickly, obviously. So many of your your docs rely on access into difficult places or groups that don't necessarily want cameras there. How uh, receptive were was an abortion clinic in America, given every the climate and environment around that topic? Like you say, how receptive were they to to your filming there, and how do how do you go about getting that access? It was very difficult because, as you say, first of all, this topic is very sensitive, and secondly, you know this this whole sort of perception of fake news and anybody carrying a camera at this point in America is viewed with suspicion from, to be honest, from all sides at this point. So sort of having those, both those things against me was quite hard to, to, to get through. But the abortion clinic, eventually I managed to, to get through to them and, and you know, had them un- understand that what I'm trying to do is to not give it any kind of a slant. I'm, I'm not sort of ideologically driven. Of course, I have my own opinions about this, but I'm first and foremost for me, the purpose of making the film is to try and understand and to try and present to people uh, what's going on and a snapshot of what life is like in a clinic like that, both for the, the abortion providers and also the women that access that kind of health. And then also trying to look at the protesters and the anti-abortion uh, sort of side of this as well. And so that took quite a while, but eventually with time, they they agreed. But before that, I'd contacted lots of other organizations, lots of women's groups, lots of even doctors. And the vast majority, honestly, were not interested in being on camera. And their reason for that was that it would attract uh, more attention to them and it would attract also the potential of violence on them and their patients and, and their, their colleagues and that just wasn't worth it for them uh, and that they'd rather quietly sort of under the radar do their work and not put their head up and say hi we are here this is what we do which you know I completely understand obviously I completely understand that but in the same line of thinking it's sort of sad and terrifying to think that in 2020 in America you know a, a, a democracy a you know quote unquote free society people are that terrified to just do their job and women are that terrified to access the help that they need that that you know it's it's if I was going into like a very closed conservative Muslim community I would expect to hear things like that I would expect to hear things, you know, shame being a, a something that restricts women, taboo being something that restricts women. Not in America in 2020, you know. So that's actually been one of the the biggest surprises for me. Is I knew things were bad in sort of middle America and the, and the south of the U.S., but I didn't realize it was this bad, and I didn't realize that people were this suffocated and this terrified to just access this help and to do this work. I mean, I find it astonishing that that's the case in the land of the free. It's not a camp- campaigning documentary you don't make films like that you 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 show both sides and i guess leave people to make their own mind up are you able to put uh, that surprise that you just mentioned there across in this in this documentary or do you just leave it as well this is what this side says this is what the other side says yeah I mean I try really hard I mean obviously I have very very strong opinions about all the topics that I I usually approach but but my my way of making films and the reason why I make films is not to confirm my own opinions and not to sort of validate what it is that I think at the outset. Typically, I make films because I have questions and I'm sort of desperately curious to try and understand something. So that's the reason I make films. I make films because I want to learn something. I want to find out something different than where I started with my questions. And so with all the films I've done that and with this one as well, I don't want to tell people what to think and what to feel about something. All I can do is try to explore and dig and understand and ask questions and sort of try to get underneath a lot of the rhetoric and underneath the chest beating that surrounds a lot of the the topics that I tend to handle and see 
what the sort of human side of that, what the human consequences of that may be, and just absorb that and put that on screen. And then it's for people to, to make their own minds up what they feel. I mean, obviously, the films that I make are obviously influenced by who I am and how I think and how I perceive things. But I do try very hard. I don't try to be neutral because I'm, I'm not. But I do try to get as close to the beating heart of it and the humanity of it that I possibly can and then leave it up to the person watching it to to see what they feel and how they connect and relate to what's being said. Not, not necessarily my point of view, but some people would say someone on the far right who's attacking an abortion doctor or somebody who is uh, going into a race riot in Charlottesville shouldn't shouldn't be platformed. They shouldn't yeah. have, get uh, a voice in a documentary to, to put these views across. These views are dangerous or, or whatever. Where do you stand on, on, on that? I completely understand that impulse. I completely understand that that point of view. But obviously, I don't agree. And, and the reason I don't agree is that I don't think it's so much about uh, giving a platform to opinions like that. I think it's, or, or you know, to should you tell stories like that or not? I think it's more how you tell those stories and what kind of oxygen that you allow for in, in when it comes to that. So, you know, when I did the film about the, the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis in, in the US, a lot of people were very concerned. Even a lot of people in my sort of, you know, very close friends were like, you know, before they'd seen the film, they were like, you know, why are you doing this? You shouldn't, you know, you don't get the, don't give them the airtime. And my point wasn't to give them airtime. I didn't make the film to hear what a neo-Nazi thinks or what a white supremacist thinks. I know what they think. That's not the point of the film. The point of the film is why do they think the things that they think? And can I get actually behind and past the rhetoric to who they actually are as human beings and what might make somebody susceptible to ideologies like that and to behaviors like that? And what I came to sort of also find in the process of making that film is that white supremacists and people that are, you know, on that side of the, the spectrum, they don't want you to see their humanity. Because a lot of people are saying, are you going to humanize them? Don't humanize them. Don't humanize them. And I said, actually, I am going to humanize them because that's what they don't want. They want us to look at them as this big, badass, sort of tough villains, these kind of big monsters. That's act that actually feeds in to the way that they want to be perceived. They don't want to be seen as a human being that might be flawed, that might be contradictory, that might have problems, that might be trying to compensate for something else with the sort of veneer of, of these types of ideologies. So to me, humanizing them actually strips them in many ways of their power and their sort of PR optics, the optics of everything. So they don't want in the optics for their humanity to come through and for their vulnerability and for their kind of fears to truly come through. So my purpose was to try and get to them as human beings. And that's what came through the, the film as well. I think it's not a matter of do you cover them? It's a matter of how do you cover them? And I think if you do it as honestly as possible, as centered on them as human beings as possible and not on the ideology so much, I think there's a way to do it. Because what I don't agree with is completely banning or shutting that those voices out because that doesn't that might make us feel really good and we can pat ourselves on the back for us having the correct opinions them having the, the the wrong opinions but it doesn't make those opinions go away I think it's easier to dismantle those views if you bring it out into the light and if you actually put it under a kind of position of scrutiny rather than because the more we also shun them and push them away it sort of also feeds into their sort of story of they are somehow telling a forbidden truth that people can't handle so it actually makes it grow rather than destroy it. And for me, 
I, you know, obviously I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an anti-racist, I would even say, you know, campaigner to an extent. My point with, you know, these types of films is not to pat myself on the back and to sort of, you know, pat myself on the back for having all the kind of correct anti-racist views and positions. It is for there to be less racist to begin with. There's, the, the, you know, I, I don't need to show them what a great anti-racist I am and what a horrible Nazi he is. That's, that's boring. That's obvious. That's clear. That's a given. On the white supremacist and, and like you say you're embedded and, and filmed in, in Charlotte. As a, as a woman of colour, how, how do you get them to give you the time of day and let you embed and, and film that? Why would they let me do that? Uh, so they didn't. It took forever. So the, the majority of the, the organisations and the, the activists basically on, on the white supremacist side that I reached out to for months and months and months just were not interested. And there was this one guy uh, who is the leader of the largest and one of the oldest neo-Nazi white supremacist organisations in the US. He sent me an email to say no. And I, when I read that email, I said, okay, but I got a response. He replied. So I have to try. <laughs> I have to try more. So I, I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and did not leave him alone. And then finally he says, uh, okay, you have one hour. You come to this and this motel in uh, Detroit. And after an hour, you, you disappear. You know, you just go away. And I said, fantastic. Great. That's it. I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to do this thing. And of course, as I'm sitting there, you know, setting up and, you know, waiting for him to arrive, it's just myself and one other colleague. We do all the filming and do everything ourselves. And of course, suddenly it just starts rushing through my mind. You know, is, is what if he's got people with him? What if he robs us? What if he attacks? I mean, what's going to happen? Anyway, he comes. He honored everything he said. He came and we talked for one hour. We talked for two hours. We talked for three. Five hours later, we were still talking. And at the end of it, he said, look, we're going to go to this. We're going to this rally in a few weeks in Charlottesville. And I was going, I don't even really know what that is, but okay. And you're welcome to join us. And, and I asked him what you just asked me. I said, why do you want me to come along? You didn't even want to talk to me initially. Why is it okay for me to come? He said, I've never had a conversation like this before. First of all, I've never been asked some of the questions that you've asked me. And he said, so I'm interested in talking more. And I'm just curious about what you're up to. And he said, so you can come. Uh, and I said, and I asked him, you know, will I be safe? And, and so he sort of guaranteed that, that they will, I mean, of course, I still wasn't safe. <laughs> Uh, but also, you know, people within his members within his own organization were very upset that I was there at all. And and as all of these groups were planning, you know, preparing that morning to march in to Charlottesville, I had several uh, different group members from other organizations as well who were later on involved in a lot of the violence who came up to me in early, early in the morning, you know, cursing at me and going, you know, what, what the F are you doing here? Who the F are you? Because I'm the only person that everybody else was white, as you would imagine. But because of this one guy, this one leader, I was able to go. And he has since then, I mean, that was 2017. Uh, last year, he contacted me and also this year to tell me that he's he's left. He's resigned from the whole thing. And part of the reason was the time that we spent together is what he says. I was utterly shocked to hear that. But in some ways, not completely surprised because even when I was talking to him during our long, long, long interviews, because also I drove with them or, or, or rode in the car with them, the nine hour drive from Detroit to Charlottesville, I was stuck with with a Nazi basically in the car. This wasn't even in the film, but I was stuck with him in a car for nine hours filming him uh, and started poking and prodding and eventually just getting just bored and starting to make fun of him and really see how far I could push him. But even during some of those times, I remember thinking he should leave. He's he's actually a half decent person. I mean, why, you know, and I even said it to him because the morning after Charlottesville, one of the people that was with him, who's very, very aggressive and him and I had sort of had it out uh, that morning. And I remember looking at Jeff. Jeff Scoop is the leader of the 
the, the group who's now left. And I remember looking at him going, you know, Jeff, why are you doing this? Why are you part of this? I said, you're not like this. You know, you're better than this. You are better than this. I know it. And he just, you know, wouldn't answer, didn't say anything. And I kept, you know, making jokes and saying, you know, I'm like your annoying sister. I keep, you know, annoying you and keep sort of pushing you and, you know, really kind of getting on your nerves sort of intentionally. But it was really interesting because three people from that film ended up leaving. And they're part of their reason, not the only reason, but part of their reason was that they'd never spent any amount of time with the people that they hate. In that sense, you know, it's 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 sort of self-selecting in that sense, the fact that they said yes and the majority did not say yes, you know. And then once you do get a chance to build human relationships and human connections with each other, you know, something else does become possible. Obviously not with everybody, but, you know, sometimes it does. You know, and these are guys that were so deeply, deeply committed and entrenched in this and now are working, you know, on the anti-racist side of it, which is amazing. You filmed in America many projects over many years. How has it changed from, from then to now? What's it like going across America with a camera in your hand as a journalist at the moment? It's become more and more difficult to, to travel around America with a, with, a, with a camera because everybody thinks that you're out to sort of get them or that you're out to exploit them in some sort of way. It has become more dangerous because people have become more physically aggressive towards journalists, but, but also towards each other. But beyond all of that, beyond anything that affects me personally, it's become profoundly divided. It's become divided in a way that it's so unpleasant. It's become so unpleasant. I, towards the end of it, and I, I've been traveling and visiting the US now for about 15 years on and off, and I've got lots of very good friends there. But over the last several years, every single time that I go, it gets worse and it feels worse and worse and worse. And to, up until just a couple of months ago, I, like I started counting the days when I could leave. I mean, I, I, I just it, the tension there, the, the fear you can feel on all sides of this and the deeply, deeply divided uh, society that it has become. It's kind of heartbreaking, to be honest, to see. And it's just getting worse and worse. And Trump's presidency is sort of the catalyst, is sort of the facilitator for that. These opinions and the appeal of Donald Trump and the topics that, that, that he sort of appeals to his base through that doesn't go away just because he goes away. And I think the real challenge resides in how are the, you know, next leaders of America going to address that and deal with that? Because they're going to have to. They're absolutely going to have to because that sort of constituency, that population in America is not going to go away and they will be ripe for a Trump 2.0 if 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 the, the Democrats don't get this right. But, you know, in some ways, somebody asked me earlier, you know, but do you feel hopeful that they'll do that? I I would like to think that that's what they're going to do. But like I say, it's so divided there and it's so hostile on every front and people are sort of retreating into their own corners and their hearts are hardening and their views are becoming very absolute. And, and this kind of premise of us and them on all sides of this is rather than thinking of, you know, how do we find a space of reconciliation? How do we find a space of building bridges? How do we find a space of understanding and reaching out and not excusing, but how do we still find a way to to, to coexist because it still has to include those people too. He said that magical thing, which I think really helped or, or contributed massively to his uh, success in the first place, is when he spoke to white working class and white poor people in, in, in the US saying, you were forgotten, but you are forgotten no more. That is so powerful to hear. Everybody wants to hear that. Doesn't matter what you look like and what your background is. That's everybody wants to have their struggles, their life, their reality acknowledged. 
as the US leads, the UK follows on, on so many things and that, that division and uh, the war against mainstream media and uh, fake news and all of that, we're, we're not too many steps behind on that. How do journalists and documentary makers go about re-establishing trust in their work among people who will start peddling terms like fake news and mainstream media and things like that. How do you go about reaching and and stopping that erosion of trust? I think there's multiple things. I think, first of all, this is all about trust, right? That trust is gone. And and I think, you know, everything that I do, even if I'm filming with with people who I obviously hold completely different views from, and they know that as well, there's still a level of respect and kind of holding on to people's dignity and treating people with dignity that I think is really important. And I think to to ensure that that this that the interactions that we have with people that we're filming or people that we're interviewing, it cannot be just transactional. You know, it can't be, I need this, you need that. Okay, now we have it, now let's, you know, disappear their trust takes time and it, and it, and it requires sincerity but it's hard for me to say you know because I because I you know I'm not a trained journalist I'm not a trained filmmaker even I, I'm just a person who as I said you know I'm just obsessively curious and I just you know I to be honest with you one of the reasons I started making films in the first place was my own frustration with with quote unquote the media I mean that's such a big label but you know but the media and how uh, certain stories were being told uh, where I felt that the sort of human Humanity of people was being left out uh, at the center of a lot of these very difficult topics or these stories. And, you know, so I don't know what the protocols really are. I can only go by what people tell me about how they've been treated by other, you know, news outlets or other, you know, filmmakers or other journalists. And it doesn't sound like people have the greatest experiences. Um, So I think, you know, maybe something to do with our protocol and how we treat people, there's something in there that can probably be revisited. But, you know, the overall the fake news kind of paradigm, the just unreliable sources of information that are out there now. I mean, I think we have a a, a huge uphill battle to try and undo some of that. But I think I think how we tell stories also has to be thought about a little bit more. You know, the, the obsession with Donald Trump and the obsession with just what we as an industry sort of emphasize, we also have to have some self-reflection and, and see how do we contribute to this. You know, the other film that I've done is about, you know, anti-Muslim kind of extremism and, and sentiments in America. And a huge part of why that is accelerated to the extent that it is, is also the only stories that, that we and the media have told have been just negative about Muslims. You know, and I'm not saying we should like, you know, clap for Muslims and say, oh, look, let's do some feel-good stories about Muslims. It's not that, but it's just we are a part of telling the story of our stories of our time, of our societies, of our streets, of our communities. And very many people, most people that live in the UK or live in America, don't have access to those human interactions with people that are very different from themselves. So the only time they get to meet somebody who's a Muslim, for example, is through the media and the stories that they hear there. So if those are all toxic stories, if those are all stories of beheadings and of bombs and of stabbings and all of this, then no wonder you're going to have a terrified population. And no wonder they're going to think that they have to go and now attack those people as a sort of gesture of self-defense and self-preservation. So so I think how we combat it is we have to also look at ourselves and how we're contributing towards some of the 
this divisions that are uh, deepening and the fractures that are occurring in our societies. So I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of self-reflection and honesty that needs to happen. And of course, you know, this transactional thing, of course, this entire profession has also become, it's so under siege now and it's so sort of difficult for people to even earn a living. So I know that there's a bit of a panic within the industry too. We're going to have to figure out why do we do what we do? What's the point of it? And then try to do it with uh, as much integrity and humanity as possible. Dear Khan, Welsh coming-of-age drama In My Skin began life in 2018 as a one-off pilot produced for BBC Three, telling the story of a 16-year-old who leads a double life trying to keep her chaotic home life and her mother's mental health problems from her friends at school. BBC Three later ordered a full season of the series, which debuted earlier this year and went on to win a string of BAFTAs. Writer Kaylee Llewellyn, on whose life the series is largely based, and director Lucy Forbes spoke with Michael Pickard about the show and the way in which television is coming to terms with tackling issues surrounding mental health. If you consider it all all in one go, you know what I mean, if you sit down and sort of think of the whole journey of the last two years, it sort of feels a little bit unfathomable. But um, I I, I think the, the success began sort of the way that lots of successful things do in that we put people first um from the get-go we we really put myself and Neris Evans who's the executive producer brilliant working class Welsh gal we put a lot of stock on finding the right team people mostly women um first and foremost but people who we gelled with and we connected with and we knew cared about the project as much as we did so by the time we got to shooting we had this really tight-knit community and no one phoned it in you know everyone really gave it their all and I, and I think partly down to the subject matter it's interesting the show is obviously about a time in my life when I felt incredibly ashamed and felt like I needed to hide who I really was and in writing this show it's the first time I realized that quite a lot of the people I thought I needed to hide from which was like middle class what I class as like really cool and powerful tv people I sort of wrote this script and like nine times out of ten I'd, I'd meet people and they go me too I had a family member who was mentally ill or a loved one or a friend or you know whatever and so I think because of that the subject matter seemed to have touched personally so many of our team and so we all just like we just gave it our all and it was it was honestly a joy I, I couldn't be more proud of it. Take me back to the to the beginning because obviously this, this sort of started out as I guess is it as a comedy slice is that what they called it for BBC Three? So it's this half an hour drama I guess that you you submitted did you or how did how did you kind of come to to write about this you know in the first place? So I it was back in October 2017. I'd just come off the back of that day another project that I had been developing in the USA. The USA I don't know why I said that. That was so the US of A. Um, it really looked like it was going to go. Like everyone was saying, this is going to go, this is going to happen. And it wasn't that anything I particularly loved. I just was really excited that I might have this show. And then I got a call to say, nah, it's not happening. It's all fallen through. And I was so gutted that I was like, I have to throw myself into the next thing right now. And previously I'd kind of, obviously with it being autobiographical, the basis of In My Skin has been gestating in my brain for a while, but I kind of wasn't ready to expose myself yet to my peers. And it's only that I was so gutted on that day that I was just like, okay, I'm doing it. And sat down at my laptop and just wrote this sort of very honest one page outline. But this is what happened. This was what my mum was like. This is what my dad was like. It was really hard. I think I can make a TV show out of it. And like before I could regret anything or overthink it, I just quickly fired it off to a few trusted producers 
producers that I knew and liked. And Neris came back straight away and was like, we have, let's go for coffee like tomorrow and talk about it. And so I met her and she was like, I'm going to do it. Let's just do it. Let's not meddle with it. I want to take it straight to the BBC. Um, so she, she met with Shane Allen a week or two later and he commissioned the script. But right from the start, he'd said, look, we, we run this comedy slice scheme. And I think uh, the deadline, it was at that point, we were in maybe early November and, and the deadline was March. So he was like, just get it finished and we'll, we'll put it in there. It's not the only way you can get a commission, but it might be a good way. So I was a little bit reticent at first because I was like, there'll be some laughs, but I'm telling you now. I wouldn't call it a slice of comedy, um, if I'm being honest. But Neris was like, just make it. And let's just make it really good so that they can't say no. So we did. And we, and we put it in. And yeah, they, they greenlit the pilot through the comedy slices then. But, and from the start, I have felt like a little bit of a fraud because we're heavy. I'm like, it's, it's intense. But it, it all worked out. So yeah, that, that was the kind of that was how we started. And I, I guess considering as well that the, the pilot, you have what, 28 minutes, is it, to to get so much story and character and, you know, really showcase, you know, I guess much of the issues and the themes going on in the story in such a small contained running time. It must have been quite a, a puzzle for you to to get the balance right. And like you say, there's comedy, but there's it's obviously very dark in places as well. So how did you figure out how, you know, in terms of the writing process, how did you figure out, figure out that balance? I think a lot of people who've lived through sort of intense trauma when they were young, or maybe they've had parents who are addicts or you know just like an extended period of shite I, I think I, I'm in a gang of those people and we naturally just have learned to laugh at it because it's the human condition that you don't wallow usually if, if, if it's going on for a really long time you you use laughter to um, stop yourself from going insane so the balance was never really something that I over overthought too much it just sort of comes naturally but the way now I sort of describe it and and something I'm conscious of when I'm writing is I, I say that I like to blow up a balloon of tension and when the balloon is at its peak pop it with a laugh because otherwise I think it, the audience gets saturated with trauma it's almost too much they get fatigued by it and even if they're really enjoying the show I think eventually you start to get that thing where you're like oh I can't hack tuning in tonight it's just too much um so it's it's, it's all about sweetening the pill I think using comedy to to make it a bit more palatable I mean also for me like as you sort of touched on Katie like for me like comedy and drama walk hand in hand that is life in terms of balancing them out I think it, like drama is the same as comedy it's all about timing and space and landing the drama and landing the comedy and finding the right rhythms within it so it was funny like I remember at the beginning of the process there was lots of like how are we going to do it but I just it, I think it's just like a I mean anyway for me anyway it's like an instinctual thing and that's what was so great about this script it just this is real life and he wanted to um, portray that and then well Lucy then I mean in terms of them portraying real life I mean how did you approach the the pilot from a, a director's point of view and, and how did you kind of work together to get you know the visual tone right as well as the dialogue as well um for me the biggest the biggest thing was I just wanted it to feel real and I didn't want it to feel like any other teen like high school drama because I felt like they have quite a sort of familiar tone and I just wanted this show to feel completely unique and I wanted you to feel like you were living and breathing it with her like you you know you are you are in for the ride like we're not observing Bethan's life I wanted the audience to feel like we were strapped in next to her going along for the ride and then also it was really important that the kids felt like real kids and taught like real kids. So we encouraged improvisation a lot on set. We shot and lit in a way so we could let the, I mean, let the characters literally do whatever they wanted and we'd be able to cover it. 
especially when it came to Trina, who's played by Joe Hartley. So, you know, she's in the middle of manic episodes and I didn't want to be blocking those episodes out. So, I mean, we would literally shut her in a room and we wouldn't block with her at all and we'd light it so she could do whatever she wanted. And we would, I mean, we would literally just let her loose and see what happened. So it was a very sort of, you know, fluid. Again, the, the big thing was I just wanted it completely grounded in naturalism and I wanted it to feel true to its roots. So that's, you know, that's why we're, we shoot with handheld, like we're always on. Every, everything you see in the show is from Bethan's point of view. It's not from anyone else's point of view. It's completely through her eyes. And any shot of, any shot of her is completely clean of everyone else because it's her story. So it was, it was little, little things like that. And it was naturalistic lighting. And just I didn't want anything to feel forced. I just wanted to feel like we were living and breathing it. It was so, um, before we met Lucy, I was so worried that there was a version of this show that felt CBBC. Like if it if it was lit wrong or shot wrong, with it, or it, it could slip into like a Grange Hill Biker Grove category. That was my biggest fear that I kept saying to Neris. And then Lucy rocked up and had this mood board of like visual references. And we were just like, yes, she gets it. She just instinctively gets it. It was just like that. You've said so much of this is based around your own life. What was it like for you to kind of write Bethan and, and her parents who are quite, you know, you could do dramas about them just on their own, really. But to bring them all together, how much of that is is truthful for your own life? and how much have you kind of uh, dramatised it, I guess, for, for the show? Um, it's, it's very close to real life. I, I, I wanted to find small areas where we could um, just find a bit of space, basically, to help me to spin a good yarn instead of always going, this is exactly how it happened. I didn't want to be wed to my, you know, teenage diary. I wanted to tell a good story. Um, but a lot of it, you know, and the, the way it's panned out, it, it is very close to reality. But we did little things like Trina, my mum is a blonde, well, woman and we cast a brunette Mancunian woman. I have two older brothers and a younger sister but we made Bethan an only child. Just those little things that aren't huge in terms of the way you tell the story but just for me as a writer it, it helped me find a bit of space. In terms of writing the show I think it was really cathartic and helped me particularly in relation to say my father he's he passed away in 2015 but a man that I had no sympathy for and I never wanted to sort of suddenly make him this like sympathetic character in the show either I want I wanted to show a real depiction of him but also not make a 2D stock monster so to do that I sort of had to find a way to put myself in his shoes which I've never done before it's sort of been easier to go I hate that man but yeah I, I sort of had to get into his psychology and go okay he behaved that way why what brought him there and it, they're, they're very light touch but it was really important to me in the series that we found those few moments where he was nice to Bethan like in, in episode two when um he reads her poem and he's sort of he said oh good that and it's not a huge change but he says it's good that and that from him is that it's a big thing and, and then in, in episode five, I think it is when he um, he hears her practicing her head girl speech, and you know he says, "When I when I hear you speak like that, the words you've got, and you just know that." He's a man bound by his own background. But if he had the words, if he had the means, what he wants to say is, I love you, I'm proud of you. But that's the closest he can get. So anyway, sorry, that's a long-winded answer. But, you know, um, it was it was therapeutic is the short answer. And then by the time we got to set, oftentimes, because I've been writing it for months and then we do the auditions and we hear people say the words over and over again and then we rehearse. And then by the time we get to set, I'm, I'm almost desensitized. And oftentimes I think would be some of the other crew or cast would be crying. And I'd be like, I'm all right. Right, it's fine. And uh, and and Lucy, what was it like on set? Because 
you know, you've got a, you know, the, the cast put in some fantastic performances. Obviously, Gabrielle Creevy won a BAFTA last year for the pilot for her performance as Bethan. And you mentioned Joe Hartley's, you know, just in episode one when she's dancing in the street and you can already see in her eyes, you know, the, the manic episode that she's going through. And, and we see obviously Roger Meller as uh, her father as well. I mean, what was that working with those three like as the core cast? And, and you know, how did you get them into that mind frame that they had to be for the characters? I mean, they all gave it absolutely everything they had as as Kelly was saying you know that's what was so special about the show we just really were surrounded by a team of people that really 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 cared the big thing for us was that we just wanted to get a true depiction of men of someone suffering with bipolar on the screen and we worked really really hard at that and spent a lot of time talking about it you know and just making sure that we got it right and we got it totally right and it wasn't too you know the last thing I wanted or we wanted was was, you know, to look like an actor playing someone having a breakdown because I think the balance of it can so easily go off the rails and just become too eggy. And so for us, that was a really, really important thing. And Jo absolutely smashed it. She really did. But it was all about, you know, we just talked about it a, a lot Hayley's obviously got pers- um, personal experience of living with someone bipolar. I've got personal experience of growing up with someone bipolar. And we just translated that to Joe as much as possible. We talked about it a lot. She really, 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 really prepared. And again, it was just, you know, we just get her in the right headspace on set. It was very, we went very method with it. You know, I would, I completely shut her away from the cast and crew because she's an incredibly friendly, lovely, warm, open woman. And, you know, she comes on cruise be like oh can I have a cup of tea what are you doing you know she'd just be chatting with everyone so we I mean I literally locked her in a box and completely shut her away from everyone and as I said then we would just we would just let her rip and see what would happen it's such a sight to behold when like we'd have her Lucy would sort of have locked her in a room and got everything set up and then it'd be like open the door and it was like a Tasmanian devil flying out of this room and actually though I would get goosebumps sometime because Joe it was almost like stars in their eyes but with mental health she'd walk into the room as Joe Hartley and she'd come out as my mother. It was bizarre. And she's never met my mum. That was the point we we sort of made to um so that she could she could make it a character in her own right. But like it was goosebumps accurate. You did something else very cool as well, Lucy, which was cool and cruel. At the start of the shoot, said to um Frodri, don't speak to Gabby. Just when you're around set, if she tries to chat, just be really cold with her. Because he uh, Lucy wanted to keep that sort of like stiltedness between them as father and daughter. And I remember it was like the final few days of the shoot and Gabby was like to me really think Rodri doesn't like me and I was like oh no Lucy told oh Lucy told me he's not allowed to speak to you because of character stuff and she was like oh what I thought he hated me it's very effective it worked really well it did yeah it worked really well but and also like Gabby is an absolute absolute little superstar and she incredibly talented improviser, incredibly talented emotionally, such a thoughtful actress, really listens to, and that's what's so, that was so good, but so beautiful about Joe and Gabby's, they really listened and really reacted off each other in really, because, you know, you know, we never, you never knew what you were going to get sometimes. And, and she, 
so prepared. Like, I mean, I almost cried with joy. The first day of rehearsals, Gabby turned up with this like folder and she had tracked the emotion of her character across uh, across every script, across every scene with all these little graphs. And she was incredibly well prepared, but um, we were incredibly fortunate with our cast. And, you know, they worked incredibly, incredibly hard. And, um, And I think giving them the freedom to sort of play with it, I think really helped the naturalism, really helped with the drama and the comedy you know I think it just tonally across the piece I think it it really fits with the show well. Rachel Sheridan our casting director who like trawled high schools and youth clubs and did open casting calls on Twitter she just uh, there's not a child 16 year old in Wales that Rachel did not audition for those roles so we have a lot to thank her for. And and so I mean you know you've you've done the pilot then and you know that's gone off and it's been a big hit and then you're asked to do four more episodes and the story kind of follows on from the pilot despite the time gap so what was the process for both of you like just to get back into that mind frame and and find a way to continue what I guess had been quite a self-contained story perhaps when I conceived of of the idea of this show I began with the final scene of the whole series dancing in the mental hospital and her love interest walking in that really happened to me and so I, I knew that I wanted I knew the end of the series before I ever wrote the pilot so the pilot was written with the intention that we'd hopefully get more so going from pilot to series for me anyway it was just a thrill I was like thank god I get to finish telling this story it was a very like painless joyful writing experience for me but for you Luce I don't know like picking up directorial with a bit of time having passed no I was just I was I was really thrilled that we were getting to do it we were going to get to tell the story and I mean I know we're wanging on about it but we really did have a really special team like really special team and I don't think that happens very often uh, at all ever and just to be able to go back and pick it up again and also what was what was really nice about it is we knew what we were doing and we knew that it worked so there was a lot more I think everyone had a everyone had a bit more confidence in what they're doing and it was you know it was a joy it's just those performances were just electric and bringing it all together was a joy we had this amazing like so Kaylee just mentioned it we the final scene of the series where uh, Bethan and Trina danced together in the hospital and we'd had a really 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 stressful day we were losing light uh we were running out of time and we had to ru- we and we had to rush through that scene absolutely rush through it and i was gutted because it was like the most important scene of the whole series and anyway and so we we set it up again in the right let's just let them go way and um anyway and so we let we played we played the we played this dance dance, dance track by Licky Lee which has made it into the final edit and we just let them dance and I think it's because it'd been such a stressful day and because we all wanted it so badly and this isn't an exaggeration it made the whole room cry like everyone cry even the extras were crying the DOP was crying I was like every everyone was just brought to tears by this sort of magical sort of this dance we've seen it was it's sort of so overwhelming and so emotional and and you know and that's what for me that's one of the things that makes the show so special is that it had that power over us because we were all sort of like weirdly witchly connected in some way and but yeah but it was you know it was a joy it was a joy to direct and I'm, I mean I'm absolutely over the moon that I got the chance to do it and tell you know Kaylee's story and it, it really has been such an unbelievable pleasure and uh, I mean why do you think the show has struck a chord with people Joe one of the things that shocked me that I didn't imagine writing this 
when I was writing it, I would say the majority of people who reach out to me um, on social media or whatever to say this show's really affected them are men and, and often middle-aged men as well. And I really thought our demographic was going to be women and and young people. And so I've thought about that a lot. And, and I think it's because we, we talk about mental health in a way that feels real. And that was so important to me and Lucy and so amazing to, to be able to hire Lucy, someone else who's had firsthand experience with bipolar, because at every turn I could kind of look at her and go, does it feel re- real to you? And she'd be like, does it feel real to you? And we could both go, yes. And I think that has shone through anyone who's lived through it as it's, you know, it's resonated with them. And I suppose, you know, we particularly have an issue with men feeling like they're not able to talk about their emotions or what they're going through or show weakness, you know, why we have such high suicide rates in men, sadly. So, so that was the shock that it resonated with that that demographic. But I, I think that is it that we we've sort of done this no judgment um, depiction of it, and it's about adolescence. And everyone has this awful, cringeworthy nostalgia when you see someone going through those things for the first time. We we can all kind of relate to that. And I think a lot of us have complicated relationships with our parents. And and I really wanted to from the get go. I sort of had this list of like, so I don't get lost in this writing process. I'm going to write a list right now. And the list is just like, why am I writing this show? And I've just bullet pointed so that I could always look back at that and go, am I achieving those things? And number one on that list, I I have something along the lines of that the person you love the most can also be the person who hurts you the most and who you feel ashamed of. And then you feel more shame because you feel ashamed of the person you love. Um, Because that was my relationship with my mum. And I think a lot of people know what that feels like. And then just really good directing and really good performances. How do you feel mental health has been depicted on TV thus far? And, and how do you think it needs to change maybe in terms of what you try to do with In My Skin? There's, there's very little and, and that's getting better all the time, which is fantastic. But I, I always wanted to write the show that I wish I could have seen when I was a teenager. And I'm not exaggerating when I say I think a show like that would have changed the course of my early life. Because Telly is this incredible Trojan horse. Like, I remember, this is, sorry, I'm off on a tangent now, but I remember watching you send when I was young. And my grandmother, who I was incredibly close to, who's depicted in the show, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was beside myself. I just, I like, I couldn't speak. I couldn't leave my bedroom, just like racked with fear that my nan was going to die. And then about two days later, it just so happened to coincide with Peggy Mitchell getting breast cancer on EastEnders. And she was going into treatment and the doctors were like, you're going to have chemo, you can survive this. And I watched the TV and thought, oh, so maybe my nan can survive then. Oh, maybe it's going to be okay. And, and you know, she, she did survive and thank God. But so he did that for me and I think if I could have watched a show like in my skin when I was young I would have gone you don't have to feel so ashamed and so I wanted to do that for future generations and and, and hopefully we have and you know hopefully more and more people are going to keep talking about it now because it's only by talking about it that we remove stigma and everyone is touched in some way everyone Kaylee Llewellyn and Lucy Forbes that's all for this episode there'll be more from the podcast soon but in the meantime stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening.